scripture reading from the same chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 1, and let's read from verse 17, where we read this lament, this elegy uh, by David for Jonathan and Saul. 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 17, and David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. Also he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Below it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, And in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of woman. How are the mighty fallen, and the weapons of war perished. (coughs) So far the holy word of God. Well, we have here, uh, as we mentioned, an elegy or a lament for Jonathan and Saul by, by David, who heard from the mouth of this Amalekite, of the news of Saul and Jonathan and no doubt the brothers of Jonathan's demise. And so he composed this, uh, this what we may call a funeral song of sorts. Um, as far as I know, the only funeral song, funeral oration if you want, over an unbeliever, Saul was an unbeliever, uh, in the Bible. There, there may be another, but I don't know of any. And it's certainly instructive to study it and, um, because it was penned, of course, by the man out after God's own heart, David. And he praises and um, laments not only Jonathan, who was a godly man, but also Saul, as we mentioned, was, was an unbeliever. And, and, and so it's, it's very instructive to, to read this and compare this, perhaps, with what we often here at, at funerals, right? Uh, you've been to funerals of people. Um, have you ever heard, perhaps you have, I've never heard from, from, uh, from the pulpit in a funeral, uh, a strong indication that this person was unsaved. Even when almost everybody knew the person was unsaved, right? So somebody lives as a, as a non-Christian, as an unbeliever, and dies as an unbeliever. But very rarely uh, is that strongly hinted or pointed out in the, uh, in the funeral 
And most, most funerals, it seems to be that people find all sorts of um, praiseworthy things in somebody's life. Uh, I'm talking about unbelievers now. An unbeliever dies. And um, <coughs> all sorts of praiseworthy things are mentioned. But with more than a hint that really this person is heaven's favorite. Really, really on, the, on account of this or that or some praiseworthy action or qualities or uh, excellences in this person's life, he or she really um, should be in heaven. And, and often this is taken, you know, kind of with a smile and there's, there's kind of a light banter. You've, you've heard that, you know, he's, you know, he's always so good at, at golf and he really loved golfing and now he's playing golf in heaven with the angels, you know. Um, that's the sort of thing you, you hear. And, and the person could have been a total uh, unbeliever, you know, but now he's riding his Harley Davidson you know, in the company of angels you know, while God smiles upon him. That, that, that sort of thing. And it's instructive now to, to compare this. And we see here in, in Jonathan's, uh, rather in David's lament, uh, not a single word of untruth. He doesn't dwell upon Saul's sins. Um, so perhaps that's instructive too, right? Perhaps we don't need to do that here. Uh, but, but you can still be truthful as, as David is. But the point is this, that the things that Jonathan, um, or rather David mentions about Saul, and it's a whole list of accomplishments and so on, uh, is by no means evidence that God loved him, right? It's not evidence. It's not Anything that suggests that he should be in heaven. And that's something that we should note in our passage uh, very simply today. What, what is the evidence in your life? If you, have to, if you have to compose your own funeral oration, right? That somebody will tell about your funeral one day. Um, what would they say? And what about your life is evidence that God loves you? That Christ loves you like David loved 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 uh, Jonathan. What evidence is there that God is pleased with you? Uh, you can have all sorts of accomplishments. Should God be impressed by those things? That, that's what we want to ask today. Because Saul, we know, was an unbeliever outside of God's love, and he died outside of God's love. And so we can learn from this passage uh, what cannot be evidence of God's love. And the first thing is this. Evidence that God loves you cannot be God's natural gifts. God's natural gifts. Look at verse 19, where Jonathan, but also Saul, is called the beauty of Israel, is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? The beauty of Israel. Um, they are called, verse 23, Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. Certainly that was true in a spiritual sense also of Jonathan, right? Lovely and pleasant. But in a natural way, that was true of, uh, of Saul. He was naturally gifted. He was, we are told, tall and handsome and athletic. First Samuel 9, where, where Samuel goes out, um, or Saul is sent to, to Samuel, we are told that he was a choice young man. A choice young man. And handsome, or goodly, and head and shoulder higher than all the, pe all the people. 
Later in 1 Samuel 10, we're told that when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people, from his shoulder and upward. And even at his anointing, when uh, saw, uh, Samuel anointed him, Samuel said to the people, See ye him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. I mean, here was a man. Here was somebody striking, gifted, in athletic ability, in, in physical appearance. And um, he certainly was, in terms of natural gifts, somebody to be admired. And perhaps you are, too. And we are prone to kind of think, and this is the sort of thing we often hear on, on funerals, and this person was just so gifted, you know, with a sense of music, musically gifted. Now, God had gifted her with such musical abilities. And, and the suggestion is that God must really have loved her for this reason, for her natural abilities. Or he, he could do this, you know, he was, he was so uh, uniquely favored by God to be given this and this and this ability. But you see, this doesn't make you heaven's favorite. This doesn't mean that God loves you. Because he gives those very same abilities to many unbelievers. And Saul, of course, is the case in point. Far better to be like Helen Keller, deaf and blind, but be a Christian. So one could see a, say at the a funeral of, of Helen Keller, she was a Christian. She had some strange ideas, some strange theology too, but she was a Christian who confessed Christ, who confessed God, believed in the Bible. Um, or Joni Erickson Tada, those, those of you who have read about her, she was uh, I think about 17 years old, 16 or 17 years old, and then in a diving sh dive um, into, into shallow water and then hit a sandbank and broke her neck. And she was a quadriplegic uh, you know, since then, so for more than 50 years, um, paralyzed uh, in her legs and her arms, couldn't use any of her limbs, spent her life in a, in a wheelchair. And yet she praises God. She was a Christian when that happened, she says, but she lived, you know, very nominally as a Christian. She had no real desire to live for Christ, no closeness with Christ. Christ wasn't the center and the purpose of her life. But through that accident and through the suffering that that brought, she has been she said, uh, you know, brought closer to, to acknowledge God and to thank Him and to, and to seek after Him and to seek after spiritual union and unity with Christ above all. Uh, far, better, far better to be in physical gifts, um, to have much taken away from you and yet to be a believer, right? So that's the first thing. God's natural gifts or no evidence that God loves you. Those natural gifts, gifts can be taken away. Any one of us can have an accident. Your beauty, is, girls, yeah, you may, your beauty may be the thing that you prize above everything else. That you can lose that uh, in one day. Uh, your intellect, your intelligence, uh, your uh, whatever gift it is that people praise you for, and that you think gives life a purpose and meaning and dignity to your existence. That cannot be the ultimate dignity. That cannot be the purpose. That cannot be the center, center point of your, of your life. A second evidence, uh, second thing that cannot be evidence that God loves you, that, that, God, <laughs> um, that you are in, in God's favor, is your success. Uh, God's good providence in your life. 
Because certainly Saul experienced a lot of God's good providence, his, his, his external blessings. We read, for example, example in verse 22 about his military victories. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul was accomplished as a military commander. We read, for example, about his victory over Jabesh Gilead, uh, or rather the Ammonites who besieged Jabesh Gilead. Remember that instance where the Ammonites besieged Jabesh Gilead and they said, yeah, you can serve us, we'll make a covenant with you, but everybody has to uh, uh, pluck out his, his right eye or, or destroy his right eye. And that's the condition. And then Jabesh Gilead said, just give us seven days and we'll see if anybody will, will save us. They sent message. And then in those seven days, Saul mobilized an entire army of 335,000, I think it was, uh, people in seven days. And then sent message to Jabesh Gilead and said, tomorrow when the sun is, ho sun is hot, there will be deliverance for you. And then from the time he sent the message, probably through the night, moved his troops and attacked Jabesh Gilead. And we read of, of similar other exploits too, where we see God's blessing, God's external blessing, success, in this case military success, resounding military success, that met Saul. So uh, verse 22, the sword of Saul returned not empty. We see that in verse 23 as well, where we read that they were um, swifter than eagles and stronger than lions, a suggestion there of, of military strength too. Or verse 27, how are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? The mighty, he is one of the mighty. He was a mighty man, blessed by God in many of his political and military endeavors. Verse 19 as well calls him one of the mighty. How are the mighty fallen? God's good providence. Have you met with God's success in business, in your social life, in your studies, in many of your endeavors? Uh, in marriage, in your family life, perhaps. Well, praise God for it. But you need more than that to be sure of your relationship with God and with Christ. Somebody can have a stable family life and be an unbeliever. Somebody can be successful in business, successful in politics, successful uh, militarily, or in some or other uh, area of life, and yet be outside and live outside of God's love. Don't, don't be lulled into thinking that God's kindness in granting you success is evidence of God's approval. Thirdly, evidence that God's love, God loves you cannot be your service for the cause of Christ outwardly. Perhaps you do a lot for the sake of of the Lord, um, outwardly at least. Well, look at, look at uh, Saul, what he was doing. Well, we have this praise in, ver uh, in verse 24, specifically mentioning Saul. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put ornaments of gold upon your apparel. Well, these were spoils of war, possibly, or otherwise the fruits of economic prosperity and success, which through Saul's labors, through Saul's successes, accrued um, to Israel. So Israel were enjoying the fruits 
of Saul's successes so that they could delight in uh, their, their clothing, the scarlet, other delights and ornaments of gold and so on. Financially blessed, perhaps blessed because of uh, the result of Saul's military successes and in other ways. Certainly, God's people, one could say, God's Old Testament people, prospered because of Saul. And there have always been throughout history people, even unbelievers, who have directly or indirectly, sometimes purposefully, um, served God's kingdom outwardly, in an outward sense. We think of Cyrus in the Old Testament, the Mede, who let the people return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and so on. He wasn't a believer. He wasn't a believer. So that's not a, a sign, you see. His service and being used for the cause of Christ can be no uh, evidence, no proof of his being in Christ or in the love and the favor of God. Think of uh, Constantine. Now, Constantine was, or Constantine, however you pronounce it, uh, people pronounce it differently. Now, uh, the verdict is not out whether he was a Christian or not. Some historians argue he was. Some are very uh, adamant that he wasn't. But he certainly did a lot of favors to the church, certainly abolished persecution and so on uh, in the Roman early uh, Roman Empire in the well, not early Roman Empire but in the fourth century. So um, uh, th there, was a, there was deliverance for the church through the labors of Constantine. Does that make him one of God's favored ones? Well, we shouldn't be so quick to say that. Now, of course, we can look in our history at many figures, right? Look at Abraham Lincoln, for example. Now, Abraham Lincoln did many praiseworthy things. Uh, apparently, he abolished slavery. Now, <coughs> that could have been a, an astute political move, but, but he did do it. Uh, does that make him a Christian? Uh, did you know I grew, grew up thinking that Abraham Lincoln must have been a missionary? Because in my history books from when I was a child, he was kind of painted like, uh, in later years, some of the pictures of Barack Obama, kind of like a halo almost around him, right? So here was Abraham Lincoln. I always thought he was a missionary. And then I thought, oh, no, no, he's actually, he was a politician. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, um, a questionable polit politician on certain accounts, too. Uh, so, so he's abolishing slavery, does not recommend him, does not mark him as one of God's favors, favorite ones, right? <laughs> How about John D. Rockefeller? Remember John Rockefeller? I mean, he built all those churches, several beautiful churches that he financed. You can go and see some of them in New York and in Chicago and so on. Uh, was he a Christian? Some say no. I'm inclined to think he was. I think he was a Baptist. And uh, I do think Baptists can be Christians. <laughs> That's just a joke. That's just, they are. I mean, we have, we, have, we, have, we have... I mean, it's not a joke that they can be Christians. They absolutely can be Christians, right? Um, I shouldn't joke about these things. But um, about John D. Rockefeller, let, let's just say this. He, it's, it's, there, there are some historians who doubt that he truly was a Christian, but I, I look at him more favorably. I, I, think, I think we can, we can say we have every reason to, from some of the accounts, think he was, uh, was a Christian. But this is the point. You can, you can give a lot of money to many churches and still be an unbeliever. Right? That doesn't mark you. That's not the test. That's not sufficient proof of your being in the favor and love of God. 
Uh, here is another thing. Um, and, and for that matter, John D. Rockefeller, I mean, that, that complicates it. How about, um, who was the steel, the steel, big steel guy? Uh, Carnegie. Andrew, was it Andrew Carnegie? Yeah, so he, I mean, he gave a lot of, we had in South Africa, libraries that were built from Carnegie kind of fund for, for poverty relief and so on. So a lot of good work, social work, upliftment work. Um, was Carnegie a, a Christian? Well, who knows? He did a lot of good social work, uh, good efforts, uh, possibly even promoting the cause of Christ in an outward sense, but that doesn't mark him as a Christian. That, that's a third thing. Here's a fourth thing. Your reputation among unbelievers for being a Christian or for being a spiritual person. That doesn't mark you as a Christian. You know? That doesn't mark you as one of God's people. Because look at this. Here is uh, Saul, clearly regarded by the, the, the Philistines as one of God's people. So much that David says, verse 20, tell it not in Gath. Do not tell in Gath. Gath, remember, was one of the royal cities of the Philistines, uh, those ancient enemies of God's people. Tell it not. Tell not of Saul and Jonathan's death in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Now, why with the daughters of the Philistines, the uncircumcised God's people's enemies. Why would they rejoice? Well, because they hated Saul. Because they saw Saul, as they saw Samson many years earlier, as a threat to the Philistine power and the Philistine dominion. They saw Saul as somebody who was protecting God's old covenant people, and he was indeed a hammer that God used to often smash the Philistines. Now, we do get the sense that towards the, the end of Saul's life, through his neglect, through his sinful neglect, and his obsession with trying to uh, pursue David, he, he neglected his defenses, opened the borders, you know, left a lot of the uh, weak spots in Israel undefended so that the Philistines could then amass their massive army really in the center of Israel and inflict this devastating blow against Israel and against Saul. But nevertheless, at different times uh, throughout his life, he was much used by God uh, for, uh, for, for the destruction of the Philistine forces and the unbelievers. So that he had a reputation, you see. He had a reputation of being God's man, God's king, the king of God's people. And it can be, it can be in your case that you have among the people you move, uh, in the, uh, among your friends, in your neighborhood, uh, at your workplace, it's possible to have a reputation as a, as a spiritual woman, as a spiritual man, as a spiritual boy or girl, and yet not be a Christian, you see. Everybody can speak of you as a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. They, they may even say all sorts of uh, praise uh, uh, praiseworthy things about you or they may even mock you for being a Christian that doesn't make you a Christian your reputation among unbelievers or for that matter among believers uh, doesn't in itself make you a Christian that, that is no evidence no sufficient evidence at least that, that God loves you at all Saul was the enemy of God's enemies broadly speaking and yet 
that uh, was no proof that he was in the love of God. Here is a fifth thing. It's no evidence that God loves you if you have and if you display selective obedience in some area of your life. If there's some department of your life in which you have, which you display holiness, well, that's good. But does that, that make you a Christian? No. Um, in this case, uh, I, 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 I would um, take verse 26 to kind of refer, of course, directly to Jonathan, but possibly also to Saul. And let me read to you verse 26, what it says. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of woman. Now, a couple of things we should say about this. First of all, that uh, David, of course, was not uh, sexually faithful in his, in his marriage life. You know, we know about later in his life, his tragic fall with Bathsheba. Uh, by contrast, Saul apparently had no serious sexual th- sin. He, he seems, it seems to me that you know, he was, uh, we, we have every reason to think that he was faithful to his wife. At least the, the Bible gives us no reason to think differently. Now, Jonathan too, we can safely say, had no grievous sexual sin, at least that's, that we are told of. And some, you know, some modern-day uh, commentators or really unbelievers uh, like to uh, pounce on uh, verse 26 here and, and say that, ah, oh, yeah, we have a Jonathan and, her, and, uh, and a David really had a homosexual relationship because they say, look at this. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of woman. They say, oh, there we have it, David and, and Jonathan, there's something very inappropriate in their, in their behavior, in their relationship. Well, what shall we say about that? <coughs> well, there's no reason to, to, uh, you know, to allow that. That, that, would be, that would be wholly out of place, wouldn't it? For somebody like David, say he did, uh, just for argument's sake, say he was involved in some sin with Jonathan. Uh, he, he would not broadcast this in a lament for Jonathan, where he's singing of Jonathan's godliness and uh, the beauty of Jonathan's soul in this lament. This is not the place to then, without a hint of confession or of guilt, refer to that. So this would be a most unlikely reference to um, any inappropriate relationship. So once again, those uh, people who are <coughs> clutching at straws and try to see uh, some hint of sin here are being very imaginative. It's far easier to simply understand this as what it says. <coughs> Jonathan's love was better than the love of the woman, at least some of the women, that David had known up to now. Because if you think of J- David's first wife, Michael, she was disloyal to David to the point of um, giving Saul reason to hate David even more when she said, well, the reason I didn't betray David was he threatened to kill me if I tell. Remember how she allowed David to escape and Saul then confronted Michael. He's, uh, Michael was Saul's daughter 
And her father confronted her and said, why didn't you tell me? And he said, and she said, well, you threatened to kill me. Whereas Jonathan, even uh, in very distressing circumstances, remained loyal to David to the point of risking his own life. So here is a contrast between Jonathan, who remained faithful to the point of risking his own life, versus Michael, who was disloyal, betrayed David, just uh, to make things easier for herself. And in that sense, there, uh, here's a simple case where it was the, was the situation that um, Jonathan's love was of a better quality, passing the love of women. Some commentators think David may be referring to, remember the woman, the young woman of Israel who was singing Saul slew his thousands and David his ten thousands. So here were many of them who were caught up in kind of a superficial, um, uh, superficial mass, you know, adulation of David. And David, you're so wonderful. And he's saying kind of, some commentators suggest, uh, David, you're so wonderful, but this is just a superficial kind of love, right? This is just kind of a superficial um, spirit of, of the crowd, really. Whereas some trustworthy friends like Jonathan, this is a kind of love that can stand the test of death even. But this is the point that um, <coughs> uh, we know of no grievous sexual sin in the life of Jonathan. We know of no grievous sexual sin in the life of Saul. We do know of serious sexual sin in the life of David later on with Bathsheba. All to say this, you may be free from certain serious sins. Praise God for that. But you can be free from those sins and be outside of Christ. We praise God for faithful husbands. And yes, let that be mentioned at their funeral services. But that doesn't make them yet a favorite of heaven. That doesn't yet commend them in the eyes of God. Are they in Christ? That's the only thing that matters. And perhaps you sit here today and you are proud spiritually because you can look around rightly at many people you know and look at serious sins in their lives. Our question, our question to you this evening would be, are you like the Pharisee? That says, I thank you that I'm not like him. I thank you that I'm not like her. I thank you that I... Or are you like the publican who says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here is a, a sixth uh, evidence because we can take this one step further, right? If you have selective obedience, selective holiness in your life, we said that's no clear evidence that God's lo God loves you. <clears throat> and we can go a step further and say, well, you can even have some selective moral excellence. You can, be, you can have some virtues that you really display, that, you've really, uh, that you are recognized for and honored for, and yet not be a believer. Look at verse 23. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. We'll say something about that in a minute. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Swifter than eagles. Stronger than lions. Strong as a lion often in the Bible has the connotation of bravery. And in a real sense, Saul was brave. Some of the accounts of his exploits. Certainly this uh, saving 
of Jabesh Gilead. There, too, we see him swifter than eagles. Isn't it? Swift, energetic, you see. Hard-working, uh, decisive, and doing what his hand finds to do with, with all his might. And we certainly see him decisive here, as we mentioned, in assisting the, the people of Jabesh Gilead, as I mentioned, mobilizing that entire army within a week. In ancient times, without our modern communication, telephone and, and email and uh, text messages and so on, uh, to mobilize over a large area those numbers of people and then move swiftly against an enemy to crush them. Swift like eagles. Perhaps you are here today <coughs> and there are many things that people praise you for. You're a hard worker. You're trustworthy. You're honest. Perhaps you're humble. Self-sacrificial. These are good things. Praise God for them. But do you know that many unbelievers have, by what some would call God's common grace, we don't have to use that term, but by God's, um, by God's providence to them, let's call it that, there are unbelievers that have these qualities too. There are unbelievers who sacrifice themselves. There are unbeliever, unbelievers today in, in the Middle East who sacrifice themselves for their country and in Russia, and Ukraine, and wherever, in this country. You'll find them. There are unbelievers who are willing to lay down their lives for their children, and for their family, and for their country, and for their um, platoon, or their military unit, or whatever. You, you read about these accounts of the September 11 attacks, how some people there who were trapped afterwards died to save others. And there's no, there's no hint that they were believers. It's not only believers that do these things. Uh, believers should, right? We should be the first to self-sacrificially, like our Lord did, die uh, for the sake of others. It's easier said than done, of course. But we have to recognize that uh, even unbelievers often, often do this. Matthew 5.45, Your Father in heaven maketh his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Well, he certainly gives moral excellence in many situations to the just and the unjust. Well, here's a, a seventh thing. It's not evidence that God loves you if God's people love you. If God's people love you, if, if a true Christian, if a godly person loves you, even that is not evidence that you are in Christ, that you are a believer, and that God loves you. I look at verse 23. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. Well, certainly Jonathan kept loving his dad. And in his final hours of his life, there was he, faithful to the end, at his king's side and at his father's side. Kept loving his dad. I wish we could say the same thing about Saul, right? Saul almost killed his own son, almost killed uh, Jonathan at some point. But Jonathan, certainly, the godly, the, the godly man of the two, the, the Christian, the believer, who loved God and, um, uh, and who we recognize here as the one who loved God's anointed, David. Jonathan loved Saul with a natural love with a natural love, but a true love, right? And we can recognize 
true love from believers for unbelievers and yet say, well, you know, that's not quite, that's not quite something for the unbeliever to boast about as a sign of God's favor. Have you encountered this? I, I know people that are married to a godly spouse, unbelievers that are married to a godly spouse, and think that because of the fact that, that, that he is married to a godly wife, for example, God loves him. He will go to heaven because he's married to this wife. She loves him, so God must love him. And perhaps, children, there are some of you here today. Are you done at the back there? It's my own children that I have to address like that sometimes. <laughs> so, um, the fact that you are children, there are those of you who are loved by your parents, and they are godly parents. And they love the Lord and the Lord loves them. That in itself doesn't make you beloved by the Lord yet. The only question is this, do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the question that you have to know and that you have to settle. Jonathan loved Saul. You may have a godly spouse. You may have a godly parent. Sometimes it's the other way around, right? Sometimes parents have godly children. And I think that somehow, because of that, they are heaven's favorite. Not quite, not quite. Um, you, have to, you have to make sure of your situation, your spiritual status in Christ. What is, the, what is the only significant question is this. Do you love God's anointed? Do you love God's anointed? Do you love the greater David, Christ. Do you love, like Jonathan loved David? And David loved Jonathan. Can you say that you love the greater David, that you love the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you believe in him and you believe in his word? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that would mean you believe in the word of God. Christ himself is called the Logos of God, the word of God. If you believe the word of God, if you believe the gospel, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that is the only thing which gives you every reason to say, God loves me. We love him because he first loved us. Yes, I love him because he first loved me. But I know I love him because I believe in him. And this is why Jonathan really is the main character of this beautiful lament written by, by David. Jonathan the archer, the bowman, he is especially mentioned in what is here called the, the Song of the Bow, or as it's translated, verse 18 here, the use of the bow. This is a song about an archer. Remember Jonathan, who is described for us as the archer there, a bowman. Especially remember, Jonathan recognized God's anointed David. Jonathan remembered how Jonathan encouraged David in the Lord. He could not encourage David in the Lord if he wasn't himself in the Lord. But what a picture to us of what it means to, be, to love the Lord's anointed and to be therefore safe and secure in the evidence that God loves you because you love his anointed and you believe in him. Amen.